I want to invite you to take your Bible this morning and find the Old Testament book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. On Sunday mornings, we're studying the book of Hosea in a series I've entitled Boundless, God's Relentless Love. In the book of Hosea, we see the faithfulness of God in spite of the unfaithfulness of His people. And so here today in Hosea chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, I want to talk to you about this subject, what people need to know. What people need to know. Now, I imagine if uh, you come to church on Sunday, when you come to church each Sunday, you typically come with some basic, basic assumptions and expectations. You expect that when you come to church, there'll be somebody here to greet you. Maybe someone will pick you up in a golf cart and take you where you need to go. When you come to the lobby, there ought to be excitement and energy, greeters there to welcome you, somebody behind a welcome desk, some coffee that keeps you awake while the preacher preaches his sermon. You should expect to see friends that you know, to hear worship songs that encourage you, that kind of draw you in away from the pressures and the struggles of the world and point you to Jesus. And you should expect to hear the preacher, the pastor get up and preach a sermon, a new sermon, a different sermon than the one he preached last week. Is that, is that right? Just wondering, because if I just have to keep doing the one I've done, then we'll just do that. You expect to hear a new sermon. Imagine if you came to church and you got all of that, but every Sunday the pastor stood up, I stood up, and I preached the same exact sermon that I preached last week. And I preached that same exact sermon every single Sunday for nearly five decades. What would you think about that? You'd say, we wouldn't keep you for five decades. I understand. Well, this is what's happening at the end of the book of Hosea. If you remember the beginning of the book of Hosea, God called Hosea to live this painful action sermon and to go marry a woman who would be unfaithful, commit adultery, live a life of prostitution. God told Hosea, you need to be faithful to her. You go buy her back. You bring her to yourself. You love her faithfully like I've loved my people faithfully. And then the last part of the book of Hosea, really kind of chapter 8 all the way to the end of chapter 14, Hosea preaches the same stuff. The same sermon is repeated over and over again. It's a sermon about the unfaithfulness of God's people, their idolatry and their infidelity. And it's a sermon about the faithfulness of God, how God has loved His unfaithful people like Hosea loved his unfaithful wife, Gomer. And so Hosea just keeps preaching the sermon. Why does Hosea keep preaching that same sermon? Because the people don't listen. And they don't do anything that he says. Now that would be an interesting question. What if I preach the same sermon I preached last week until you start doing what I said you ought to do last week? Now that's what's going on in the book of Hosea. It's not just the preacher keeps preaching the same thing over and over again. The people aren't listening. They're not responding and they're not obeying the word of the Lord. And so here in Hosea chapter 8, chapter 9 and chapter 10, Hosea still preaches the same sermon. He's reminding us what people need to know. Now we're not going to read all three of those chapters. And honestly, as we cover three chapters, we're not going to be able to deal with every verse and every word. We're going to pull some principles out, but let's read some selected verses of chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. Look at chapter 8, 
beginning in verse 1. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they've transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. They cry to me, my God, we, Israel, we know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy pursues him. Chapter 8, verse 7. For they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers were, would devour it. Chapter 9 and verse 17. So turn maybe a page or two in your Bible. Chapter 9, verse 17. My God will reject them because they've not listened to Him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Chapter 10, the first two verses. Israel's a luxuriant vine the, that yields its fruit. The more its fruit is increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. Verses 12 through 15 of chapter 10 as we conclude. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it's time to seek the Lord that He may come and rain righteousness upon you. You've plowed iniquity, you've reaped injustice, you've eaten the fruit of lies because you've trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel in the day of the battle, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of the great evil at the dawn of the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. Remember this morning, God's word is perfect. It has the power to transform and change our lives. So from Hosea chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, we learn what people need to know. And as I look at these chapters, I'm trying to take some, some general principles and pull them out. And so in order to not preach the same sermon over and over, I thought about applying some modern-day proverbs to these chapters. First of all, I want you to notice, number one, a picture is worth a thousand words. That's a modern day proverb, isn't it? You've heard that before. A picture is worth a thousand words. If you read the entire book of Hosea, you will discover that Hosea paints multiple pictures. I preached to you a few sermons ago of Hosea chapter 5. He paints the picture of a courtroom scene where God is the judge and his people are the defendants and they are pronounced guilty before him because they refuse to repent. And so there, that picture that Hosea painted was the picture of a courtroom. Hosea's entire life, his marriage, his family was a picture. It was a painful action sermon. God had told him, you be faithful to Gomer, even though Gomer's going to be unfaithful to you. You have a family and you love these kids, even though a couple of them probably aren't even yours. And his entire life was a painful action sermon of the goodness and faithfulness of God in spite of our unfaithfulness and our spiritual adultery. And so in chapter 8 and chapter 9 and 10, Hosea reminds us a picture is worth a thousand words because he, been, he continues to paint pictures to give analogies, similes and metaphors of what Israel is like in the presence of God. Now we're not going to deal with all of the pictures because almost every verse he provides us with, a, with an image of what it's like, this rebellious people. But we see a few pictures that I want to pull out. First of all, we see a picture here of a vulture. Did you hear right there in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8? It, we, we see God painting a picture. He says, set the trumpet to your lips. 
One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. Now, maybe your translation says an eagle, but, but literally what the word means is one of the birds that picks or tears flesh off a bone. We know that to be vultures, or if you're from Georgia, it's a buzzard, right? Have you ever been to Perry for the buzzard drop? Some places are fancy. You know, we want to drop these crystal balls like in, in New York. You know, we're going to go to Times Square. No, 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 not in Perry, Georgia. We have the buzzard drop, all right? So we are, we get it, right? Vultures, buzzards, this is the picture that God's painting here. What is a vulture? Do you know vultures don't kill? You think, maybe like an eagle or a hawk. No, vultures don't have these big talons like eagles and hawks. They got little bitty chicken feet. You ever seen a, a vulture, a buzzard? They don't kill, they just find what's dead and pick it clean. As I've been studying this week, all these people talk about vultures tell us how happy we ought to be that vultures exist because they actually do society a great service. They take that dead, nasty, rotting carcass and they pick it clean so just the bones are left. So from now on, you're going to be so grateful for buzzards, I, I can tell. You're going to go to New Year's in Perry, Georgia and watch the buzzard drop. The vulture. God is saying to his people, look at this. Now, right now, one like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the nation of Assyria that is headed to destroy the people of God. But he says Assyria is not like an eagle or a hawk. It's not going to be Assyria. You're already dead. You're already cut off. You're already separated from me. This vulture's coming. It doesn't pronounce that you're going to be dead. It says you already are. Interesting. God's saying, there's a vulture hovering over you. And it's because you've refused to obey my word. The next picture is a vessel. In chapter 8 and verse 8, God refers to his people in an interesting way. He says, my people are a useless vessel. Already among the nations, you're a useless vessel. What does this mean? Well, have you ever taken your hot cup or your hot pot of coffee and poured it into a cup or a mug that was cracked. You know what happens when you pour hot coffee into a cup or a mug that's cracked? You get hot coffee all over your hand or your arm because that hot mug, that cracked mug is not going to hold the hot coffee. Here's what God's saying. You are a useless, broken vessel. You are unreliable and unfaithful. Because God's desire was to fill them with His presence. God's desire was to fill them with His glory. God's desire was to fill them with His love. And all the while, God's pouring all of this out. And God says, you're not receiving any of this because you are a broken, useless vessel. Do you know what they did with broken pottery in those days? They didn't take the time to try to repair it. They just broke it into small pieces and they built it into the floor or the pavement around them. And so all you did with useless broken pottery was dash it into pieces and turn it into pavement. That's all it was. And God says, you are a broken, useless vessel. God wants to fill them with his grace and love, but they won't receive it. Then he says, he gives the picture in chapter 9 and chapter 10 of a vine. A vulture, a vessel, and a vine. Chapter 9 and chapter 10, God refers to his people. This is interesting now. In chapter 9, verse 10, he says, You are like grapes in the wilderness. Interesting. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. In chapter 10, he refers to Israel as a luxuriant vine. Think about that for a moment. 
Like grapes in the wilderness. You don't expect to find a grapevine in the desert. But when you do, you're thrilled. I've been to Israel and I've seen the terrain in the desert, the rocky, jagged terrain. And nowhere, as I'm looking out over the wilderness, did I see this beautiful, luxuriant vine of grapes growing all by itself. You don't expect to find that. But God says, I found you out in the middle of nothing and nowhere. And you were like a a luxuriant. This is how I feel about you. I found you. I pruned you. I made you produce fruit. And you begin to be great and wonderful and beautiful and fruitful. But the more you began to bear fruit, the more prideful you became. And the more prideful you became, the more rebellious you became. And the more rebellious you became, the more idolatrous you became. And now, you are proud. And you are arrogant. Because you say, look at us, we're like a, we're like a grapevine in the desert. We are beautiful and wonderful and we produce fruit. And God says all the while, I'm the one that did this for you. Chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. Israel is a luxurious vine that yields its fruit. The, look at this now, this is exactly what I just said. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built, not to the Lord, but to false gods. As his country improved, he Removed Has his country improved? He improved his pillars. Their heart is false and they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. And today we say a picture is worth a thousand words. You know what that means. When we say a picture is worth a thousand words, we mean a picture can tell a story. If a picture is worth a thousand words, I wonder what a YouTube video is worth these days. Probably a million words, Right? We say a picture is worth a thousand words. Literally, it comes from a Chinese proverb. A picture paints a thousand characters. That's what it means in Chinese. Really, with a picture and illustration, you can convey an idea or a truth. This is interesting. As Hosea paints these pictures, he's showing us what it's like to to have a God who's faithful, but a people who are unfaithful. What picture or analogy do you think... God would use to describe your relationship with Him. If God had to paint a picture, or if He had to use a metaphor or an analogy, what do you think God would say? What kind of picture would He paint? You see, today, we talk in terms of emojis. Everyone sends emojis in their text messages. I have to admit, I do not speak emoji. I don't understand the emojis. Like, there's there's this one where there's a palm to the face, like this. And if Stephanie sends that to me, I'm like, why is that person sniffing their hand? I don't, I don't get it. Or there's one where there's, there's, if you want to convey like something really funny, there's one that's like laughing until you cry, but there's also one that's like really crying. And I can't tell the difference between the one that's laughing until they cry or the one that's really crying. I don't use emojis because I'm really nervous. If I give you bad news, I might give the one that is laughing until it cries. Or if I give you good news, I might have the one that's really crying. I don't speak emoji, but I wonder, I mean, if our world, you, you, you do know that I believe emoji means we're going back to hieroglyphics. I think that's really where we're headed because teenagers today can just talk in terms of emojis. That's it. You like a little slice of pizza, a thumbs up, you know, eyeballs. Let's go have pizza. I'll see you there. I mean, I guess that's what it means. I don't speak in terms of emoji, but just for a moment, I think if, if God wanted to paint a picture or he wanted to tell us, if he wanted to paint a picture, show us. I wonder if it'd be the, uh, the smiley face, thumbs up, 
or the disappointed look thumbs down. Like if he's looking at my life and if he's examining my behavior, yours and your behavior, your family, our church, his people, I wonder what God would begin to say as he seeks to paint the picture of where we are in relationship with him. A picture is worth a thousand words. Secondly, familiarity breeds contempt. Here it is, another modern-day proverb. It's been around for a while, but it's a proverb in our society. Familiarity breeds contempt. We see this in these chapters, Hosea chapter 8 through 10. Here's what this proverb means. Extensive knowledge of or close association with someone or something leads to a loss of respect for them or for it. Extensive knowledge or close association leads us to value something less than it ought to be valued. I, I wonder, as you read about the people of Israel, do you, do you see this in their lives and their relationship with God? And I wonder if, if you see this in your own life, how we don't value so highly the things of God as we should because we're around them so much. And here, God is reaching out to His people. Hosea is preaching for decades, repent, and nobody, nobody's listening. Nobody cares. Judgment is coming. They don't believe Him. God is angry. They don't believe Him. You've been unfaithful. They don't believe Him. God has loved you faithfully. They don't believe Him. Nobody listens. The things that ought to be most important to us and should hold the greatest value to us are the things that we most often push to the side. Look at what he says in chapter 8 and verse 12. Were I to write for them my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. God says, I've given them my law, I've given them my requirements, I've given them everything they need, and they look at it as if it is a strange and weird thing. Interesting, the nation of God had put their trust in their city walls and their defenses and their fortresses, but they'd abandoned their true protection, the Lord. It should come to us as no surprise. Those who don't know God, they're not going to care about His Word. They're not going to want to obey His instructions. But what about those of us who know God and we still ignore His Word and ignore His truth? He says it shouldn't surprise us when unbelievers don't care about the things of God. I think the greater tragedy is when those who say they are believers don't care about the things of God. Familiarity breeds contempt. Look at chapter 10 and verses 3 and 4. For now they will say, we have no king. For we do not fear the Lord and the king. What could he do for us? They utter mere words with empty oaths. They make covenants so judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of a field. Look, look at that. Israel had rejected their true king. They rejected God. And now they say, we don't even have it. We don't care who the king is. We're not going to do what he says. We don't fear the Lord. We're not going to do what he says. God wanted to be their king. He wanted to lead them wisely and faithfully, but they refused and they show no remorse. Remember last week we talked about when repentance isn't real. They've even moved beyond pretending to be sorry. They simply don't care. As a child, a man named John Weber played with a toy worth millions of dollars. He didn't even know. As an adult, he visited a... uh, 
a London antique shop, and there was an old cup that he had had as a childhood. During his childhood, he had had a toy, and he learned that this old cup was a Persian relic, probably created a little after the time of Hosea. The golden cup appraised for nearly a million dollars. Most likely had been used by royalty in a Persian dynasty. Little John Weber used that cup as target for his air rifle growing up. He didn't even know this childhood toy held such great value. And so like a priceless treasure that had become nothing more than a more than just a child's plaything, Israel had treated the things of God like toys to be put up on a shelf. Here's this great and wonderful, valuable, valuable thing. And they said, we don't even, we don't even care. We don't care about it. Familiarity breeds contempt. Do you see how this can be true in your life as well? Hey, honey, we going to church Sunday? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I might, I might be tired. You shouldn't be tired today. You got an extra hour of sleep last night. I might be tired I really got a, I got a great picture on my trail cam of a 10 point. And so I think, I think the Lord wants me to be in the deer stand. Well, you know, I caught a really big fish at this last spot. And I think maybe, just maybe, if I went back Sunday morning, I think maybe. Hey, what about, uh, what about being involved in a life group? Well, I give the, I, I go to church and that's like long, you know? I mean, it's at least an hour. If you go to Second Baptist, it's longer than an hour. We don't even beat the Methodists to the buffet. We'll beat the Pentecostals, but not the Methodists. I can't, I don't, I don't know, sitting in a life group talking about my relationship with God. Yes, just, it's not me. All these things that we're, that we're doing as a church to try to provide you ways to grow in your faith and to help you in your relationship with God, and we push them away. Things that are so essential and so important. Look, what if you couldn't go to church? What if you didn't have the ability to go worship God? Uh, let me, can, I, can I give you a vivid illustration of how familiarity breeds contempt? Here it is. The Bible. We have access to the inspired, infallible, perfect, life-changing, destiny-altering Word of God. You know, you go to any church on any given Sunday, and the lost and found is filled with these. Have you ever seen the video? The video of people in a windowless, dark room in China opening suitcases. And as they open the suitcases, they discover they're filled with Bibles. And there's weeping and there's rejoicing. And they take the word and hold it to their lips and kiss it and praise God that they finally have a Bible in their language. We'll take ours and put it on the dash and leave it there for the week and it curls up in the sun or collects dust on our nightstand or leave it in the chair and it gets put in a lost and found. We don't value the things that are valuable. If you really knew how awesome this thing was, you would read it every chance you got. 
If you really knew how powerful the Word of God was, you would get into the Word and let the Word get into you and watch God transform your life. But here's what we do. Push it away. Familiarity breeds contempt. Third, you always reap what you sow. You always reap what you sow. We see this in chapter 8 as well in chapter 10. Hosea paints a picture of sowing and reaping. Maybe your mama told you or maybe your grandma told you. You always reap what you sow. Hosea uses a phrase here that you've probably heard before. You sow to the wind, you reap the whirlwind. Here he's showing us the principle of sowing and reaping. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7 says, Whatever one sows, that he will also reap. And, and honestly, that's really common sense, isn't it? You don't have to be a farmer. You don't have to have an agricultural background to understand. If you plant a certain type of seed, you expect that seed to produce a certain type of fruit or flower or vegetable. Nobody in here... You could be the biggest city slicker in the world. But nobody in here wants to plant a flower seed and expect an apple tree. That's not the way it works. The seed you plant is then the fruit that you expect. Common sense. The concept of sowing and reaping is all throughout Scripture, but specifically in Hosea as well. Hosea chapter 8 and verse 7. They sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain. Now this is talking about the grain has no heads. There's, there's nothing in the grain. There's no seed there. There's no food there. There's no grain. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, even if you get something, somebody else is going to take it. Strangers come and devour it. Interesting. Then chapter 10 and verses 12 to 13, God encourages them. Here they are, sowing to unrighteousness. God encourages them. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. In other words, your hard, cold, rocky hearts. Break it up. It's time to seek the Lord that He may come and rain righteousness upon you. For you've plowed iniquity, you've reaped injustice, you've eaten the fruits of lies because you've trusted in your own way and the multitude of your warriors. In their idolatry, in their political alliances, they're sowing to the wind. And God says you're going to reap the whirlwind. The principle is simple. You reap what you sow, you reap more than you sow, you reap later than you sow. It's that simple. This is what the Bible teaches us. If you sow injustice and unrighteousness, you will reap judgment. If you sow for yourself righteousness, you reap steadfast love. But here the people of God are continuing to sow the seeds of rebellion, of idolatry, of injustice, of unfaithfulness. As we saw a moment ago, God told the people, you're sowing. His interesting phrase, verse 4 of chapter 10, you're sowing poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. See the picture? It applies to all of us today. Whatever you sow, that you will also reap. I'm sure if you've had kids, your kids have probably brought you a little pretty yellow flower growing in your yard. And they just think it's the most beautiful little flower. It's a dandelion. Constantly. I had Caroline give me one just a couple of days ago. Pick it. Here, Daddy, look what I got for you. And I'm like, another weed in the yard. <laughs> and it gets worse because the dandelions turn from a yellow flower into those little puffy things, right? 
And what do kids love to do with the little puffy things? <sighs> Thousands of little weed seeds all over the yard. I mean, and I'm like, why do I even pay to have this thing sprayed for weeds, you know? They're going to be everywhere. All these little yellow flowers and all these weeds. Israel might have looked like a pretty little yellow flower. At first, not that bad. It's okay. We're all right. We're good. God says you're a poisonous weed. And there are going to be thousands of these things all over the place. Poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. Everywhere. And I don't know if, if your life is anything like mine. I've never had to plant a weed at all. They grow automatically. The stuff I want to grow, i got to work hard to make it grow. Israel's faith may have been the form of a blooming flower, but it was a malicious weed spreading rapidly across the land. Hey, can I ask you, is there a sin or a sins in your life that you just can't let go of? And you look at it and you think it's not that bad. It looks just like a little yellow flower. It's okay, but it's going to mature and grow in your life. And all of these things, one day the wind blows and all of these seeds are blown across your heart. And all of the weeds are growing up and you think, I can't control this anymore. It's taking over. An old Puritan said, you be killing sin or sin will be killing you. If you're not willing to deal with it or eradicate it, it's going to grow and take over. There's a phrase in Hosea's sermon that I want to conclude with. In chapter 9 and verse 7, God looks at His people and says, The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense has come. Look, He says, Israel shall know it. What people need to know. Hear that phrase? Israel shall know it. God is saying, they may not know it now, but they'll know it then. They may not see it now, they'll see it then. They may not repent now, they only rebel. But one day they'll see the error of their ways. Punishment is already here. This is what God is saying. You may think you can get away with sin. You may think you can reject God's offer of salvation. But what you need to know is that one day judgment comes and it cannot be denied. What people need to know is that there's a gracious, loving God who's willing to welcome and receive you when you are willing to repent of your sins. But if you continually rebel against His goodness and grace, there comes a time when only judgment is left. I want to ask if you'd bow your heads and close your eyes.